Hennessy Files podcast series. Proudly presented by Aloha Surf Manly. Welcome in, folks, to another episode of the Hennessy Files. Today we sit down with former world tour surfer Kai Otten. The goofy footer is a real street fighter who worked his ass off to get into the elite ranks and showed pure fight and determination to map out an incredible 10 years on the world tour. While many didn't think that was possible, Otto never gave up on his dreams and through hard work, grit and determination, rose into the top 10 surfers on the planet. Along the way, there was plenty of dramas and good times, but it's a journey full of merit. So welcome in, Otz. How are you, mate? Yeah, good to be here. Um, beautiful, rainy, packed, crowded Sydney. <laughs> oh, Sydney, hey. <laughs> okay, let's let's take a journey back in time. It all started for you. You come from um, down south in Tafra. When did you start surfing? Uh, I started surfing on a stand-up board when I was 12 Year seven, 12, turning 13 years old. And uh, I bodyboarded before that for probably four or five years. Uh, my dad was fuming, but I was just loving it. I was actually talking about this last night with some other guys. It was just kind of the rage at the time, the early 90s. Bodyboarding kind of took over and, yeah, I was, I was loving it. So you finished school and then you decide to come to Sydney. What was the catalyst of you, you know, coming up from Tarpa to Manly? Always just wanted to be a pro surfer after I started surfing, I guess. And it was pretty cool back then. It was real mysterious. Surfing was only in magazines that would come out every now and again, tracks and that, or it was on, you'd sit around every old school surf shop and wait for a video to come out to get a t- taste of it down where I grew up. So that was really, uh, it was a cool thing to grow up kind of um, with that mystery of pro surfing, especially where I lived. I wasn't in the city, like they had major events here and stuff. So the grommets kind of got a pretty good look at it but it seemed so far away from where i was so yeah i had that dream and got a job opportunity so i came straight up the day i finished high school so that was a job opportunity with aloha wasn't it yeah they had uh, a little position going sweeping the factory and i took that job uh, i was 17 turning 18 in december i finished school in like september or something and I remember moving into this apartment on north stain with uh, a couple of older guys that both worked at the aloha factory I was sleeping above the washing machine on this little makeshift bed my dad made and it was 80 bucks a week, I think. I think I was making like 220 bucks a week, nine to five in the factory. It's pretty funny. You came to Manly and you started to like mix with guys like Dayan, even Bo Mitchell and guys like that. Was that at that point when you, you just thought, you know what, I could probably make something of this? Was it was it then or were you just trying to get no, through was, your juniors? I was pretty useless. I was like, obviously had the dream, but... I remember guys years later after I'd grown finally because I was very small um, when I got to town they were thinking I was a some kind of superstar grommet that was like 10 or 11 and I was actually 18 and they were like oh that poor kid's got no hope <laughs> um, he's not 11 he's 18 or he's done uh, so yeah that was pretty funny but I, I was the board riders and everything that with Dayan I know I knew Dayan previously to moving to Sydney so he he was a big part in me, welcoming me into the community and the surf scene, so that was handy. And then, yeah, made some good friends and some good little rivalry kind of friendship battles ensued. You actually talk about that. You develop. I mean, we lived together. <laughs> they were good times, but mm. you developed very, very late. And um, 
you know, some people, you know, as a junior, it probably affected you, but it definitely helped you later on because, you know, you got all the skills and the power. So as a junior, talk through, um, I've looked at some interviews lately, talk through your junior career. Yeah, well, there wasn't much of a junior career. I was driving up and down the coast or going to wherever the contests were. You'd fly down to Bells or however you'd get around and I hardly made a heat. I think I made 100 uh 150 bucks all up till i was 21 competing i made a round before quarters never made a quarter final in a junior series it was pretty intense competition back then i don't know what it's like i haven't followed it that much at all in the last 15 years or 20 years really since i <laughs> since i finished but the caliber of guys were pretty gnarly that when i was there like i never got really even to surf against them because i never made many heats but you know trent munros and mcdonald brothers and all those kind of guys lee winkler there was a really gnarly generation of um of yeah talented juniors that went on to have real successful careers in around my age bracket at the time so at the time you you come out of the juniors and you're sort of still just doing all the local events and stuff like that what was your first win that meant something to you in your career uh i wanted they had an acc series which was pretty cool that went kind of once you were too old for the juniors if you weren't traveling on the qs it was the australian championship circuit and that was kind of west oz and i don't know if we did south oz then but yeah victoria i think had some and then new south wales and uh i won one at narrabeen it was funny enough best four waves in the final from best three during the comp and best four waves uh, i remember that day actually uh, it was big stormy. It was big stormy. Yeah, it was fun. It was it was some nice waves. Yeah, that was my first win. Thinking back to that win, seriously, that like that felt there was a, that felt like you'd won a world title. To be honest, like you know, it was a hard comp to win, but you know because you just sort of jumped out and gone boom, I'm on. Yeah, I just hadn't really had that much success competitively. I guess I mean the odd weird little local comp or a, I don't know what you call them like a few comps around Manly and that, that I'd make the finals here never really won anything but yeah that was a that was a good caliber of surfers a few few guys that were doing the QS at the time um yeah I got the win there it was handy I went to Bali the next day and was I was broke the day before <laughs> <laughs> That's so good. now you go on the QS and takes virtually five years to get the job done um Talk us through those years, those early years on the QS grind. Was that tough? Uh, it was never tough. You get sad when you lose, but it's not tough. It's the time of your life. You're travelling with kind of four or five good friends and meeting up with 30 other good good buddies that are coming from all around Australia and you hit it out with everyone around the world and you make good friendships and travel and have a really mad time. It's just... You get a bit sad if you don't make heats. <laughs> I remember one year you came back from the QS tour in Europe and we were filming over at Curly, and the improvement and development in your surfing was incredible. It just blew me away. The amount of power and flow was incredible. Did you personally feel that change that year? As like we said a bit earlier, you did physically develop very late in life. Yeah, it was yeah, it was funny not growing and physically, you know, you're, you're well behind the eight ball with other surfers and strength and power and all that sort of stuff. But yeah, I started growing probably 20, 22, 23. I started finally turning into a bit of a man instead of a boy. <laughs> <laughs> and um, I remember going up to the Gold Coast and training with Jan Carton. Um, she did trek practitioning. She actually repaired Mick Fanning's 
hamstring when he had his major injury in 2005 and Andy King, a good friend of mine at the time, he um, had a major injury with his ears and she got him surfing really well again. He, I remember him saying, if you want to fix your leg or get stronger, you got to go see her. So um, I went up there with my good mate Dan Ross, who I was travelling with at the time and trained the house down kind of late 2005 and I think that was the change by the end of midway through 2006 I'd had some really good results and I ended up winning a QS that year to qualify um I'll get I won a contest in Canaries that uh set me up to have a good solid go at it by Hawaii and got a result at Haleiwa and qualified and it was to do with that training with her for sure and what about uh that year you know there's a lot of focus on Diane and all of a sudden you know, halfway through the year, people were sort of going, Otto's right in line here. Was it, was it good to have Diane sort of, you know, shoulder to shoulder with you as he looked to qualify as well? Because you were just, because you could, you and him had great rivalry, really. Yeah, we, yeah we've had some funny times. Um, I think the major spark for us was our good, well, good friend, Bo Mitchell. He, he nearly made it the year before in 2005. And that sparked us up because he got really close. He only just missed out in Hawaii by kind of the smallest of margins. Yeah, he he was really close to making it, and I think Diane fired up and went, "We got to, we got to get, we can do this." And he he had a good crack at it. I think you were training him at the time, and um, yeah, he went he went really hard, and I guess that dragged me along too because he'd pretty much qualified halfway through the year. He'd had the craziest year ever in 2006 at the start. Did a lot of comps and. Got a result, nearly all of them at the time, and um, I think that fired me out. When you actually qualified, how old were you? I, I'm pretty sure you actually held the record for the oldest guy to ever qualify on tour. I was close, but I think I think Poncho got me. I don't know what year Poncho made it. it might have been the year after, but Poncho Sullivan was pretty late, and then I think maybe even um, Drew Courtney and Micro were up there too as being some of the oldest. They were close to 30. I thought that maybe Poncho was 30 or something like that, but I was 27. That was regarded as late. A lot of the guys used to retire at 28 or 29, nearly 30 back in the day. So, yeah, definitely late. A lot of persistence. A lot of, you know, worrying times. Like you get, you say this is your last year, you're 27. What do you do after you haven't made it as a surfer? You're kind of starting again where most guys have already done that at age 20, 18. But, um, yeah, got there. What about your first year on tour? You get on tour and there wasn't a lot of hype on you, but straight away you proved you belong. In fact, you were just pipped by Jeremy for our Rookie of the Year. What was that first year like and how much confidence did you take out of that? Uh, yeah, well, I mean, I, I didn't have much expectation on me. I was, you know, not very known as a competitor and just, a, yeah, a random young Aussie had made the tour worldwide. Probably no one knew me except for guys that were really into into the surf game and followed the contests fan base you know worldwide yeah who, who is this kid no one would have had a clue so yeah no expectation i just trained really hard i stayed on the goldie for months before the event and worked with my good mate ben Fauvi up there and he was like my coach it's kind of the australian leg and trained with jan who was based out of yeah the back of burley got the job done in that first event which is always good you don't want to go on as a rookie and you see it happen a lot where guys don't get the result and it snowballs from there downwards i was lucky enough to i remember the heat with bobby martinez that's the result like it was at the time getting a a 17th it was which was round three or making that heat to get a ninth was massive difference in points 
and yeah, I beat um, Bobby, I think, in round three that got me a ninth. Beat Durbridge ended up beating me. That was that's huge to start off with those points because it changes your seating. I came in as the last qualifier, so my seating was very low, and that's why I ended up with Bobby because he'd had a really amazing year the year before and was seated really high, I think top five or something. That year, you actually made a final in Brazil and a semi in Tahiti. Um, who took you out in that, those two events? Uh, well, Mick beat me in the semi in <laughs> Tahiti. I gave him a wave under priority. I think it was a 10. But I didn't know the wave at all. I was just loved a hollow left. So I, was, I hadn't even, I'd been there once, I think, before that. And Tahiti's a wave that has, as you get to know it more, um, definitely helps you like i've beaten rookies when i shouldn't have just by knowing the reef better than they did um they're in a position to win and you can beat them by kind of knowing where to be on the reef at what time but that was kind of what happened with mick i think mick knew the wave a lot better than i did and i was i was making some heats um yeah ended up getting through to the semis and then mick got this one they call it the west bowl underneath priority kind of thing and that was basically what taught me a lesson and i learned from that um yeah to, to beat me and then i'm pretty sure damien hobgood won the comp Talking about uh, your skill set, like when people analyse your surfing arts, they always talk about your ability in slabby, big, solid waves. Did you feel like when you got on tour that, you know, that was going to suit your style of surfing? And when, how did you learn that? Because I remember when you first came to Sydney and I was, you were living with us and uh, there was a photo somewhere I saw where you're in Bali. I think your dad took it and it was a massive left and you had a gaffer helmet on. And I thought about it last night. I was like... Were you always comfortable in big waves? I just didn't care. You don't have fear when you're young. You see it now with guys charging 18 years old and around the 25s. You don't really care. and you, Not until you realise or wake up to yourself or you have family or something that you go, there's consequences here. I've got to, you start to, I guess the worry comes into it. The, the, I did some trips around to Bali. A couple, I did two Indo trips, only two though, before I was kind of 18. And they helped, definitely surfing Padang. We had Padang before anyone even knew Padang, really. It was like before the bridge, before there were shops, there was one little restaurant. We slept on the beach in our boar bags and ate garfish off the, off the boats coming in. It was a wild experience. My dad liked surfing kind of bigger waves. So around home, if it was, there was a good swell on, we'd always try and chase some heavy surf. Um, yeah, I don't know. And then moving to Manly, just chased kind of heavier waves around here too and if manly was ever big it was always pretty hard and unruly and dan and myself and all the boys would love going out when it was kind of solid so i guess that you get get used to those conditions i always did pretty well when the beach breaks in the tour were really stormy and big i think that came a lot from surfing manly with all the boys when it's in those conditions not when it's small grovelly qs manly but when it was actually solid hard to get out a lot of paddling finding waves in the lineup like that that's unruly was what I like to do. Did you feel like, you know, those been your strengths that when you nutted out your years, you you really looked at those events and went, you know what, I need to get results? Or was it every event you sort of analysed on itself? Because I know you're a thinker. You're a massive mm. thinker. Um, oh, I just tried to get a result at every comp. I, I didn't, there wasn't, by the end of my career, there wasn't really a wave that got the better of me. I'd had a result nearly every every venue. As some, you know, I call a result probably a fifth or better some like in france for some reason it often revolves around beaches and i never got last i never had a last in france but i only had i think i got two fifths out of my career and and all 13ths that's one i remember just 
in those particular conditions. But the first year on tour, I got second in Brazil, which was, it was actually quite solid that year. It was kind of, it, once again, it was like five or six foot beach breaks, good, good fun, solid beaches. And then for every year after that, I never got through the third round in Brazil, not once. So, um, but I did win a, I won a QS there um, years later, but it was always in the CT. I never went well again after that very first year, which was kind of strange, but I still ticked the box for a result in the championship level in Brazil that first year. So, I mean, I liked a right point break. So, J-Bay, um, the Gold Coast, Bells, I had results. And, and then, yeah, the lefts that we got to surf Fiji. And Fiji was always a bit weird for me as a, as a contest. I ne- always had expectations to do well there on myself and I always struggled. It wasn't until the last few kind of years of the tour life that I actually went well there. Um, yeah, a couple of quarterfinals and things, but yeah, never. Well, I never got the win in the good big heavy lefts that I really wanted, or probably thought I I should have got. Um, Did you enjoy I just pipe? always I always had a hiccup somewhere along the line. Pipe was never really that good to me, and I wasn't good to her. I guess <laughs> <laughs> I'd made some crucial mistakes. I remember starting. I started a heat one year there with a nine point eight or something in the first mm-hmm. ten seconds, and then yeah. I couldn't get a four for 40 minutes when it was the overlapping format and no, no, I fell off t- nearly fell off tour that year that was crucial and that was just what would happen I would just be an idiot and you know, I remember I had a wave and I stood up too tall and put my arms out or something because I thought I was at pipe and it was a big pit and it pinched and I fell off you know so I'd do dumb stuff like that a lot and um yeah for a while there I would get a nine and a two and lose heats and be just so frustrated um but yeah overall as all the waves are on tour I felt like I didn't really have a weakness. It was just always me being the weakness. Obviously, I think barreling waves, I definitely had the edge over a competitor far more than turns, and that was obvious in results. But So I felt a little bit more confident. But I wouldn't undersell you know, your turns. Your backhand's incredible. Mm. You worked a lot on your backhand. Yeah, we have a lot of right-handers where I grew up when I was young, so I, I did a lot of surfing like that. And yeah, definitely, I mean... I'm not going <laughs> to, I don't talk it up, but that was definitely a part of the reason why being a goofy footer, if you have a solid backhand, which proves over the years for every goofy footer that's survived on the tour, Hobgoods, Adrian Bucken, you know, you have to have a, a solid backhand foundation or you're not going to survive because there's five, maybe 50% out of, you know, out of the 10 events that are solid right hand points or have right handers you know pipelines the right back door broke way more through my career than actual pipeline so it's still a right hander um margaret river they took the comp there for quite a few years it's margaret river was always a left now it's a right like you don't you can hardly get a score you know 80 percent of the scores are on the rights at margaret river without a doubt than the lefts so yeah you had to if you're a goofy footer you had to be able to go right <laughs> you're always one for like you know having a dig you know, having a go and uh, basically, you know, attempting faith in the way you served your heats. What what was the heaviest heat you ever had, like, where you literally thought um, you were going to be in, you know, the ultimate danger? Uh, probably, well, Fiji, we had the giant swell and there was only two heats surfed and that was Bede and um, Adam Elling had a heat. Yep. And that was, they, they started and then myself and Rony Montero went out to close out the round. Um, they only ran two heats. That was I pulled into a wave at the end of that heat that was probably the biggest barrel I've ever pulled into and didn't make it. And then the next two waves were far bigger than the one I'd caught. And I remember 
um, Kai Garcia, the hand of God, I called. He, he kind of pulled me up onto the ski after I fell off. And then the next wave, I got a little breath. The next wave got me, and that was ginormous. And then there was a third one, but he got me before that, that wave actually landed on me. So that was lucky. But I think that was one of the worst. But the worst was a, um, a heat 2014 in Tahiti when it was... We've had a few big years. It was a really big, clean year. It was unbelievable. Gabrielle and Kelly made the final. Yeah, I had a heat with Dion Atkinson. Probably probably took Dion lightly too. I th- was into the... It was the fifth round, so you had the three-manner where no one lost. And, um, yeah, I thought, oh, sweet, this is a better draw than I could have hoped for. There was some really good... Like, John John and everyone was still in it. And, you know, you take someone lightly. And I took Dion lightly and he waxed me. He got two 9.5s or something. And I, I got an eight or something, but through the course of the heat all i did was wipe out and um i remember needing a score at the end of the heat and i started thinking about not catching a wave i was i was so out of energy and you know podo does this <laughs> i saw him after that day um vatea david was the one of the safety guys and he's like he drove over on one of my wipeouts to get me and he could just see like a couple of inches of the nose of my board tombstoning and he waited and in his tahitian um accent he's like i waited for you bro and you know your board just w- wouldn't come up and i had to leave i had to bail on you and that was i got a breath right before this other wave hit me and i remember after that just freaking out out the back thinking i've got no energy if i have to do that again i might not come up so that was probably the heat that shook me up the most where to the point where i actually didn't really want to catch another wave i remember having i had a i had my grime oscar at home too and i started thinking about him at the time and um yeah that got to me so i think yeah, that was probably the worst. There's a there's a famous photo of you uh, on a billabong poster for Tahiti. Was that that was that that day? Because you you're yeah, looking was... you're looking over the edge of this thing that doesn't even look real. Yeah, that was um that was in that heat. Yeah. I, Did I, you think of taking that thing? Nah, never. I thought I was going to die. I thought I pictured there's an iconic photo of Michael Lowe years and years ago with his board in the lip, and he he'd taken his leg rope off and swum through one. And I was thinking I had to do that. I was like, because the leg rope can drag you back over the wave. So at the time, you have about, it felt like a minute to decide, but it was probably more like a couple of split seconds. And I was looking at this black wall of water coming, thinking this is going to break. What am I going to do? Do I take my leg rope off? And I was scrapping and paddling as hard as I could to get kind of over and out of its road. And then right at the last second, I realised I'd made it and I just kind of sat up and looked over it. It was pretty crazy. But yeah, at no point did I think about going it. <laughs> In your 10-year career, what would, what do you, other than the Portugal win, which we'll talk about, right, but what do you consider your best heat where you just absolutely nailed and put it together? Um, oh, there's been a few good wins over a couple of good calibred surfers. There's a three-manner with my, my best mate on tour for a long time was Taj Burrow and he, him and Joel Parkinson, who I had a real good rivalry with in France, I was getting waxed in this heat. It was pretty fun France, four to five foot, kind of really fun beach break barrels. Joel, Joel had had a really good um, couple of waves. He was winning. Taj had big scores too. I think they were, we were, like, they were both up around 18 points. I was looking like I was gone with about five minutes to go and then I had priority. I got a really good barrel and got a great score. It was like over a nine. I just kind of paddled away from them and this one other wave came right near the end and just came straight to me and I got another nine something and, and ended up winning the heat right as the buzzer went. And that was one of the more memorable heats, just the way I did the comeback and it was against, you know, two of my good mates. So that was pretty fun. It was always good when you get a good win over a couple of your buddies, travel buddies. And yeah, that was a, that was a memorable one. Another one in 
I had a three, that was both three man. I had Julian Wilson and Kelly in a heat in Tahiti. I needed a 9.9 to win the heat with a minute to go and this crazy wave came. And I remember it wasn't big, it was probably four foot. And uh, we'd had a priority incident where I thought I should have got priority and they didn't give it to me and Julian even knew it. And then a wave came and Julian got a 9.8 on the wave. It should have been my wave. So I was right really blowing up. And uh, finally, I got priority near the end and needed a sc- big score, 9.9 or something. Like He'd nearly comboed us. And um, I remember Ray Marnie used to whistle for Kelly all the time and he started whistling for Kelly, forgetting that I was out there with priority. So I was about to go this small wave, say 30 seconds to go, and I heard him whistle and point out of the corner of my eye. I saw it. So I stopped paddling, went over the wave, and this really nice wave was behind it. It was one of the biggest sets, and I thought if I put myself deep here, I can get this score. But it was all obviously happening in, in split seconds. And I uh, dropped into a barrel late, came out with a crazy double arm claim like I always used to do when I got a good one. And I did. I got a 10-point ride and won the heat. And I was screaming and carrying on like a turkey. And um, that was a huge win too because that was, it was in Tahiti. I loved it. I didn't want to lose it there. And um, it was a good win. Talking about rivalries, you, you're famous for your blow-ups. You're, you know, you're... You're emotional, that's how you work. I remember having a discussion with Jared House one day and I said, how can I get Otto just to settle down? And Jared's response, it sort of blew me away. He said, mate, you've got to let him go because he's at his best when he's emotional and fired up. Like, you want him in that state of mind. You sort of worked on that, didn't you? You just, that's how you operated at your Mm -hmm. best, correct? Yeah, I I guess. I had some really good results when I was, yeah, off my head psyched up, but... (laughs) Sometimes I'd get too fired up, I'd notice before a heat. It was generally during a heat. If I went into that kind of frame of mind, I would succeed. But if I got too fired up, like before a heat, I could, you know, use that energy up and it would backfire. So you walk a, you walk a fine line between your, um, your preparation and what happens out in the water. And if you can execute <laughs> your emotions. Um, yeah, I don't know. There was... It was weird. My my preparation and everything changed and throughout the years. Like sometimes I would really enjoy listening to music before a heat um, for a whole six month period. Then I'd just go right off it and I'd just sit there without the headphones on and and paddle out for a heat. And the wins and losses kind of yeah, they just I never really felt like I had a good pattern throughout my career. But definitely had some. Get some, you know, fired up, angry moments in heats that got me over the line without a doubt. They'd, you know, I think it's it's similar when you watch sport, you watch rugby league or anything. Someone's kind of out there just going through the motions and they don't look like doing much. Something happens to them and they get fired up and then all of a sudden they, you know, go superhuman on the other team. So I think it's, yeah. It's... I personally think that Joel really brought the best out of you. As a supporter, it always felt more fiery when you took on the likes of Parco, Gabby or Jules. Those really tight flip of the coin results always seem to happen more against those guys than anyone else. I really think that Joel played on that, as you're all good mates, but he really loved ripping in you. Oh, I don't know. He he just he just got a lot of wins over me. It just that was the way it was. Like I had, and we always matched up. I matched up against him probably more than anyone in my career for some reason. Some of the times, you know, Joel was in the top four or five best surfers in the world for 20 years. So he's going to be hard to beat. There's some borderline calls where he has perfect style, perfect technique that he always got rewarded for. And I'm on my backhand a lot of the time on a right point, so it's quite different surfing. And it's hard to argue with Joel's style and grace. So, you know, I could win Joel Day, but 
he was a pretty brilliant surfer and i was always a bit bit i guess wild my my technique anyone against joel's technique or style doesn't look as good so he got rewarded for that which is fair enough for a lot of the time um you know and there's a couple of heats there where it was clear that i won he doesn't even deny that it's but there's only a couple like a lot of the time it can be close um and yeah when you're surfing against guys in the world title race which he was nearly every year for 15 years you got to beat him and it's it's not even a thing like they know it you know um if it's going to be close it generally goes their way and you know commentators report on it that's just a funny thing mick you know i had quite a few heats with mick because i was on tour for 10 years with him and you know you you make a few heats you're gonna end up surfing against one of those guys somewhere at the top end of the draw and mick used to wax me i don't i can't even argue with many of the heats where mick you know he just beat me hands down i just couldn't couldn't get him there's so many heats where he just he just would beat me clearly and i i have no argument gabby's to me the best most ferocious competitor in the world he wasn't when i when i when he was first on tour he was still pretty raw but he's worked it out and yeah he's beaten me i don't even i didn't really even look at the stats for him i didn't really care towards the end but (laughs) definitely yeah you know um there's been some rivalries there where you know they got they shouldn't they those guys had rivalries between themselves in the top five it wasn't really a rival with me because clearly they're better and they were they were punching out world titles and going for it a lot of the time i was just treading water trying to stay on tour <laughs> let's talk about your relationship with nick parker and Taj. i felt like they were a big part of your development on tour you seemed to take a lot of confidence when you started traveling with those guys as you saw what made them tick to be so successful did you feel that Oh, we we really only travelled when we knew that it was our twilight years. Taj and Mick. But they were your best years. Um, well, yeah, I guess, you know, I had my best result, yeah, when I was 34. That was 2013. I was travelling with Taj a lot. But even then, Joel, I don't think, I can't remember when he won his world title. But he was very much travelling with just his own unit for a long time. So was Mick. Like, we didn't, I didn't travel with Mick much. We just stayed together in Fiji a few times and um, would hang out at comps. But Mick was still, he was still going home world titles and so was Joel and so was Taj even. So they all travelled. It was when a lot of money came into the sport in those kind of, you know, uh, 2007 onwards when I was on tour. There was, the top guys were getting paid good and they had entourages and that's all they travelled with, um, bar maybe one or two events. So, yeah, it wasn't until they'd won their world titles and they were really relaxed and just comfy with you know obviously wanting to win still but didn't really care mick had three titles joel had his title and tv was about ready to retire anyway so we all hung out a lot more towards the end of our careers than more than when they did uh early on when they were really gunning for world titles 